Hello, everyone. This is the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com, and we got a lot of international news for you tonight. My name is Ethan Pelland. I'm Gideon Karaoke. I'm John Brown. And I'm Alejandro de la Cedra. And if we got a show for you guys tonight. All right, so first I wanted to uh, hand it off to Gideon just to give us an update on um, how coronavirus is going in this country at the moment. And then after that, we'll branch into the many international news stories, which I mentioned earlier. Ah, thank you, Ethan. So uh, I'm just gonna briefly talk about the coronavirus again, because that seems to be a recurring thing. So if you have just woken up from a seven month coma, I apologize for this segment and much of what's going to follow this entire episode. Um, so on the day of recording, Friday, October 23rd, the New York Times reported that the United States has had its single worst day of reported cases so far with 82,000 reported coronavirus cases. And this comes with a warning of a cold weather field surge from experts. So just to take a look at some of the numbers, other numbers, so that uh, reading from the New York Times article now, um, the number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 has risen 40% in the past month. And it, uh, the article also notes that deaths have been uh, relatively flat, but they're very much a lagging indicator. So anyways, yeah, it's not good news. It's really bad. And yeah, right now, this, uh, the main surging regions are in the Midwest and the Great Plains states. So North Dakota is actually one of the worst hit right now in the country, along with Wisconsin. So much of that region has been going through a lot of what, while they had a very peaceful summer, um, while down here in the Southwest and in the Southeast, things were not great. So yeah, it's hitting a, it's both hitting a part of the country that didn't have many cases for most of the pandemic and also spreading very broadly. So there's a lot of concerns uh, about also cold weather driving people indoors. For Arizonans listening to this podcast, which is most of you, that might surprise you, but in many areas, it gets so cold, this thing from the sky falls down called snow and makes people wanna go indoors. I know in Arizona, it tends to have the opposite effect. Uh, like anytime it gets cool out here, people are out. <laughs> but that's not the case in most of the country. Um, anyways, that's it for me. Things aren't great with the coronavirus. So thoughts from the panel. Well, <clears throat> if you look at how things have been trending here, it's been pretty much either stagnant or getting worse for the last three months, four months or so. Um, it just is, I find it to be very worrying. Um, it, it seems regardless of sort of what policies we're pursuing at the moment, things are getting, things are, are staying as bad or getting worse. Um, and it, it hasn't helped that none of this, that most of the states still, they've largely relaxed a lot of the restrictions. Um, and it's getting like, you, we're now having like surges in states that we thought were okay. Um, as you mentioned, the Dakotas, Iowa, that whole region is now um, swamped with cases surging. Um, the only, I would say, region that seems to be okay right now, Arizona's actually made a lot of improvements. 
um, and the Northeast. The Northeast is, is um, despite like that being the original um, sort of initial surge that we had all the way back in, in March and April, New York, uh, Massachusetts, they've largely seemed to get it under control, but the rest of the country is still very much so doing poorly. And it's, it's also extremely concerning too, is that um, during this period of, you know, three to four months of constant um, consistency or getting worse, that we haven't had any more relief, that the economic relief has been nowhere to be found because the Senate has refused to pass anything, any relief bill. Um, all the negotiations that were, that have been attempted between the House and the Senate and the House and the White House have collapsed. Um, and really only so far, the only thing the Senate's really been doing is been confirming judges. And so, I mean, we are in a not, not very good place. We, we are continuing to have a really, really bad epidemic and it's worse than really anywhere else in the world, maybe other than Brazil. And we're also leaving millions of people without any assistance. Yeah, concerning is the word. Um, it just, it almost feels like we're gonna go back to the summer months, especially here in Arizona. Like, I don't wanna relive those months because that was really dark and really, really like exhausting. Um, so it can see, can you see like state officials denying like the truth until things just got bad where you can't really avoid the issue anymore. And it's frustrating because I like, I've seen a lot of people still gather and have like large gatherings and it's just, I don't know. I really, I mean, at this point, I really can't blame people for going out because like, it's just not realistic to expect millions of people to stay at home and adhere by guidelines. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be in the house for a little while longer is what I figure. Yeah, I agree. Um, I know like definitely like their time out, like here in Arizona, that there might be a trend like during the winter months because like the flu and like in most places it gets colder. Like I know Wisconsin is having a really upward trend um i like live close to the wisconsin border and i know during the summer they virtually like while arizona was super bad in the summer like ethan was saying wisconsin barely had any cases and now it's the exact opposite and that's the same with illinois too now that their cases are rising near i think in illinois there was about four thousand cases the other day um which is absolutely crazy and i think as we go into the winter months i think it's bound just to get worse because in most of the country it gets super duper cold. And obviously since it's going to get colder, I feel like the virus is just going to like, I don't know, we're going to see something else. Cause like everyone was talking about in April and May how during the summer that maybe the virus would go away because of the hot weather and all that, but we're still here. So that's what I have to say. Yeah, it's all really bad. And I really just want to echo the point Alejandro made. I don't want to relive the summer. I, I said this before, two, like on the show from two weeks ago, I don't want to relive the summer. It was dark. Let's not go back there. And it seems like we are slipping. Some, 
some, there is a silver lining to what is really bad. Uh, it's not the worst case scenario. It still is bad. I'm not going to deny that. Um, it's still really bad, but it's not the worst case scenario, partly because the flu season is predicted to be significantly better than usual. So we're not at deep risk of like a quote unquote twindemic of flu and the coronavirus. We're not completely out of the woods, but the risk is really, really, really low, which is good. And this, yeah, there was a really good New York Times article published about a week ago about that. That was really worth reading just about, there's actually some good news on that. But let's not pretend that the winter months are going to be fun. It's going to not be great. And I really want to take this time. I'm not gonna, I'm not here to say, lock yourself up in your bedroom for the next uh, six months. I am here to say, wear your mask, social distance, be responsible. And if you're gonna have any sort of gathering, any sort of gathering, if you are choosing to go down that path, outside do it outside that would that actually significantly reduces the chance of vir viral transmission and this isn't me talking that's the scientists Ethan, i mean not so or, not specifically Ethan, but everybody i have already been locked up in the house since spring break so i uh, i think i'm equipped to handle maybe six plus more months of this um and hopefully by the time the outside is good again um i won't forget how to function with other human beings well said alejandro so if there isn't anything else i'm gonna hand it back to ethan all right so um we will we will now get into the the several sets of stories um some of them are relatively short but i there, there was just a lot that happened um, this week that I think was in, that was important to cover. Um, and of course, they're, they're all very um, <laughs> uplifting stories like Gideon's. Um, okay, so to go into my um, my first segment of the um, of the of these sets, um, which is actually a good good story, truthfully, um, is the election that happened earlier this week in Bolivia. So to provide some context, Bolivia. Uh, had an election a year ago that was very hotly disputed. Eva Morales, who was by that point a three-term, 14-year president of, uh, of Bolivia, who had presided over a very popular uh, grassroots-led movement called MAS, um, which is a very, as I said, a grassroots socialist party that united um, Bolivia's indigenous population or native peoples. Um, what occurred was that some international observers, including the Organization of American States and um, some on the ground observers, disputed the election result, saying that they thought there were possibilities of fraud. And the political opposition in Bolivia and the military used those allegations of fraud to remove Morales from office and annul the election. And over the last year, Bolivia had been presided over by an interim government led by, by uh, the third in line individual, Jean, President Jeanine. Añez. Añez was the leader of a relatively unpopular, but um, among most of the population, but very po popular amongst the Brazilian far right, sorry, Bolivian far right, misspoke, um, 
there was concern that Anyez or the military would not accept an election result where Moss won. But Moss, in some views, had such a huge electoral mandate. They won in this election. They won 55% of the vote in the presidential election. The next closest individual was Carlos Mesa with 29%. And so Anyez accepted the result. The military has not intervened. And so it seems, that at least for the time being, Bolivia has successfully um, transitioned away from this, this scare back to legitimate form of democracy, one in which you know the election results are accepted and that there is legitimacy back in the government. And so that's I would say that's actually a very it's a it's a victory for Bolivia. I think regardless of if you really whether or not you think that MAS is, is a good movement or you agree with with the, the person who was elected, which was Morales's labor minister economic minister, um, who is uh, Luis Arce, is because Bolivia and many Latin American countries had a long, have had a long history of the military intervening whenever they were unhappy with election results and annulling um, popular, popular will. And so what Bolivia was showed is that Latin American democracies can re re reject military intervention and can essentially tell the military that no, the people make the decisions and that is that is what stands in our democracy. And so I, I think, again, regardless of whether or not you like Moss or not, I think that's that's a it's a victory for democracy. Now, moving into my uh, other stories for the week, um, I wanted to provide an update on what uh, the what I've covered for the last two weeks, which is the Azerbaijan Armenia conflict. Um, as I detailed last week, the ceasefire is all but gone. Um, Armenian and Azerbaijani forces are still in open conflict. If you look on social media, um, there's been videos, very jarring videos, um, from the Iranian border where you see hundreds of shells and missiles whizzing by as people look on. Um, so very clearly, this is this is not a ceasefire right now. Um, Azerbaijan is continuing to advance into this disputed territory, and um, there was a, a um, Azerbaijan doesn't report um, casualty figures. Armenia does. And before um, Vladimir Putin, who is the Russian president, um, he stated that the Russian government believes 5,000 people have been killed so far in the conflict, which is far more than the Armenians estimate. Um, and as I, as I said earlier, the Azerbaijan military does not release um, any casualty figures. So it's very concerning because you know 5,000 people in this very short period that's already about a fifth of the number of people that died in the previous war, and that was a four-year-long war. So this, this situation is, is still rapidly destabilizing, and even with the Russian government and the European governments and the United States trying to stop the conflict, Azerbaijan's continuing to advance into the territory. As well, um, Azerbaijan's also being accused of committing war crimes. Um, there's been some videos and um, evidence analyzed and reported by Bellingcat, which is an American um, American investigative journalism um, open source site that shows um, Azerbaijani forces executing Armenian prisoners, as well as using um, what are internationally banned cluster munitions on civilians. And these cluster munitions are banned because they are not precise and they're actually specifically designed to cause as much like wide devastation as possible. So to be using these as on civilians shows just a lack of regard for human life. Um, 
and so again that that situation is um not it, it's it's not going well is how i'll put it uh, real quick before i go on to my other stories i was wondering if the panel had any um thoughts or questions on uh, the previous two stories yeah so she, uh let's talk about bolivia for a second i just want to say yeah uh hard agree ethan uh it is good news regardless of what you think about mass or arce um that democracy won out in bolivia that uh they restored democracy in the country and that is a good thing and something that does not happen very often and was very acrimonious. There were a lot of people that fought the interim government of Janine Añez on some of the more anti-democratic actions she made in her brief tenure. So it, it did not cost, it didn't cost nothing, but it, it's a good thing it happened. Um, yeah, I mean, also, you know, definitely. oh yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, and as for Armenia and Azerbaijan, oh my goodness, it, it, this sounds like, as I said last week, this sounds like this is going down a dark, dark, dark path. It seems like this is going to get worse. Yeah, it, it, Russian government is trying to do what it can. Um, and I, again, I, I would say don't necessarily fully believe the 5,000 um, death count figure, but I mean, the R Russian government does probably is the most, uh, besides Armenian Azerbaijan, is the most knowledgeable um, entity of what's going on in that conflict. And um, it's just very concerning. I mean, 5,000 deaths is, is, as I said, already almost a fifth of the number that happened in the last war, which, was, which lasted four years and saw the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and I also will say, for anyone who's looking to read into this more, um, be careful what your uh, what sources you're you're looking at or what what you're seeing on social media. This is a very um, hotly nationalistic war. Both sides are have a lot of um, nationalist accounts on social media. They're spreading misinformation that are um, accusing each other of actions which may or may not actually be taking place, um, and a lot of propaganda. So again, just to emphasize just to be, you know, careful what you're seeing and also um, to, to be, I guess, to know that there's a lot of graphic stuff out there too that's being shared. And if uh, the, the panel uh, doesn't have any other thoughts, I was going to move on to the, uh, the next two stories, which are having to do with um, some decisions that have been made or, or are being considered by the uh, United States State Department. Okay, um, so these um, two, the first one is that a, uh, the initial story was reported by Politico. Um, it's essentially, it's a set of documents and, um, and uh, memos, which Politico is reporting to state that the State Department is considering, um, is considering mainly um, spurred by Mike Pompeo to designate um, Amnesty International, Oxfam International, and Human Rights Watch as anti-Semitic organizations. And the basis, according to these documents that Politico obtained, is that Amnesty International and these other human rights organizations 
overzealously criticize the Israeli government and report too much on, on the actions and the, the incidents that are taking place in Palestine and the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Um, and if this were to actually go through, if the State Department were, were to do so, um, this would mean that the these organizations could lose their funding that they receive from the U.S. government. It could mean that they lose funding from their uh, from private donors, and it would also provide a pretext for foreign governments, most notably Israel, but other governments, to ban these these groups from operating in their countries. Um, so, it, it's a concerning move. Um, of course, very been it's been very hotly criticized by these organizations themselves, but also international um, international activists and and proponents of international law. Because, I mean, this this would also this would this would set a precedent for other other countries to essentially use this this justification of you know that if you report on the actions of a government, you hate that government, you hate the population. So it could provide a pretext for other governments to ban Amnesty International from operating in those countries as well. So it's concerning possible move. Um, and then the other other one which is uh, actually occurred is that the US signed on to what is uh, being called the Geneva Consensus Declaration, which is a non-binding resolution, which on its surface had some, you know, general, it was mostly having to do with global health, um, you know, global health um, development goals, but it included a clause stating that there exists no international right to abortion and that abortion should not be an emphasized component of family planning. And if, if you look at the, you know, the sort of past history of how Republican administrations have dealt with abortion on the international stage, you know, they're generally hostile to hostile to the spread of it. Um, but I never really have necessarily seen, um, maybe besides the gag rule, this like level of hostility displayed on the international stage to abortion rights. Um, and the other co-sponsors and signatories to this resolution include Hungary, Brazil, Egypt, Uganda, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and all these countries are very poorly ranked on how they treat women, on how they um, protect reproductive rights in their countries, and many of them are considered repressive regimes. Um, as well, there is a clause and sort of um, in, in the motion, which includes language which emphasizes the preeminence of national sovereignty over um, international law. In a sense, they're trying to set a precedent that, you know, national sovereignty overrules the um, ability of international organizations to hold governments accountable. Um, so, you know, before I move on to the main story that I had, I just wanted to ask if the panel had any thoughts on those last two stories. So, you know, with organizations like Amnesty International, um, you know, like you said, likely get their funding pulled from the government and other private donors. Where is the money going to come from? Is is that like a is that expected to happen? Like, are they going to get money from other places, or is it kind of an emergency for them? It really does depend. Um, some of them don't receive government funds from um, or grants. Um, I, I know that Amnesty does receive them. Um, 
the concern too is is it would be difficult as a private donor so if, if the u.s government is designating amnesty international and human rights watch as anti-semitic organizations it would make it rather difficult for private donors to feel like they're having a good public image if they're still donating to these organizations it's not necessarily that i don't think these private donors will suddenly change their minds like they oh now i suddenly think amnesty international is anti-semitic but more so that they'll think you know well, like, how, how am I supposed to be donating my money to an organization which is considered by the U.S. government to be anti-Semitic? Um, so that that's, I think, really where there where there's a lot of concern is how that's going to impact public perceptions of these organizations. Yeah, uh, just want to say on that uh, story, uh, the first one from the second round, like, it's, yeah. I agree. It's deeply concerning that that they're considering, you know, hammering uh, all these groups like Amnesty and Oxfam for being too critical of Israel. And there's a much longer discussion that is well beyond the scope of this show on on anti-Semitism as far as it relates to the Israeli government, uh, like toward it. Much separate conversation, not enough time for her to have it on this show, not my wheelhouse either. Um, but I will say just it is Israel, like many other countries, does things that aren't great. Every country does things that aren't great because all countries are led by human beings who are valuable. So I think it is... Like, yeah, it's a bad precedent to say. It's an absolutely horrible, horrific precedent to say. And uh, it, it really does hearken on the point that the United States government seems to love invoking international law when it's against adversaries, but seems to, we seem to kind of act above international law, which is uh, concerning. Well, and... <laughs> It's just that, that too, in, in the sense that this is so typically like a, a response when the governments are criticized is that, you know, whatever respective organization or or it, it hate, hates that government or hates that population, you know, that it, I covered the International Criminal Court and the sort of our decisions with with uh, regarding their jurisdiction of the United States and our decision to sanction them. Um, but like the International Criminal Court has been accused of being too pro-Western, of being, you know, Western chauvinists and targeting African leaders only, or only targeting, you know, leaders in the global South. This is almost always, you know, typically when the government doesn't have an ex like a, a, a defense, they just resort to saying whatever organization, it just hates them. And I will say at, at times, maybe there is a bit of a, some, there, there might be some merit that maybe these organizations focus too much on Israel because there is a lot of really authoritarian, horrific regimes around the world that are committing far worse acts than the Israeli government does. But that still doesn't make it invalid for these organizations when they decide to criticize an action. It doesn't mean they hate them. It just means we're, they're noticing something that's wrong and they're wanting to provide feedback on how to fix it. And, and generally, most of the time, you know, th this internal memo isn't citing like, you know, comments or, you know, actually like anti-Semitic actions by these organizations. They're just pointing to like what they believe is a, as a pattern of criticism. 
as evidence rather than you know comments by say an Amnesty International directors or human rights rock people who run these organizations it, it's just they criticize Israel more than other countries yeah just a all to all around weird thing and yeah uh, because we don't have much time uh because we I do want to talk more about and the story that you got next, um, the Geneva Consensus Declaration, say whatever you will about the right to an abortion. Uh, not a good look that we're signing uh, it with co-sponsors with notoriously stellar human rights records, such as Czech's Notes, Saudi Arabia, Poland, Uganda, like not countries with great human rights records, folks. Uh, that was sarcasm. They suck on that, on humans' rights. Especially, especially with regards to women. Oh, you bet. Saudi, I mean, come on. Saudi Arabia is literally the country that's used as the example of repressive to women in all of the Western world. A country where women couldn't even drive until, what is it, like two, three years ago? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and most of these countries are... are, are I, I guess for all the the, the worry um, and, and the criticism is of his Islamism, I, they're sure signing on to with a lot of countries that are Islamist <laughs> on this declaration. Yeah. Uh, once again, once again, whatever you want to say about the abortion issue and separate conversation, not a good look. Well, um, so I think I'll, I'll wrap up that discussion there and uh, go into my main story for the week, um, which is the anti-police brutality protests that are currently ongoing in Nigeria. And so, as always, I wanted to provide some historical context to sort of help you understand why these protests are occurring and why they're so widespread. So the movement is um, currently focused on ending a special subdivision of the Nigerian State Police known as the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, otherwise known as SARS. That's why, if you've seen on social media, says a hashtag and SARS. Yeah, the organization's foundational mission was to combat rising crime rates in Lagos and other urban areas of Nigeria. You know that uh, in the 1990s, um, there were there were sprees of robberies and uh, vehicular theft. Um, and so the Nigerian state police felt you know, that they needed a special division to combat this. Now, unfortunately, um, SARS has sort of just Evolved into evolved into being a sort of separate autonomous police force that really didn't have any oversight, that didn't have any um, accountability to the civilian government or to the rest of the police. Um, SARS officers were notorious for intimidating, harassing civilians, for engaging in extortion, torture, extrajudicial executions, and as I said, just a total lack of accountability. Um, in response to this, you know, that these, these protests initially started. Um, and so the Nigerian government has accepted to disband SARS, but they have just recreated another, another police agency called SWAT. And the concern is, is that all these SARS officers are just going to go change their uniforms and become SWAT officers. So that there's not going to be any like there's there's like the Nigerian government has many many promises to hold SARS officers accountable to investigate them, 
whatsoever. It's just, okay, we got rid of SARS, but now we have SWAT. Um, as well, the, these protests have now sort of expanded beyond just being about SARS. Now they are, they are about, you know, protesting the lack of accountability in Nigeria when it comes to state security forces. Now, police violence is, is, is an epidemic in the country. Um, in this century, the estimation is, I've seen is between anywhere between hundreds to thousands of Nigerians who've been killed by just the police. And that doesn't even take into account um, the people who've been killed by Nigerian military forces. Um, and that is something I wanted to briefly talk about as well, is that last year, the UN um, special reporter or repertoire, I still don't know how to pronounce that, on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary execution, state of Nigeria is facing an epidemic of violence from both state and non-state entities. Um, you know, that, you know, Nigeria is facing an insurgency by Boko Haram, which is a very violent and extreme um, Islamic political movement, which is seeking to either overthrow or create an, an independent state in the Northeast. But the government response has been incredibly repressive. You know, Boko Haram initially was not as violent as it started out, but some, some scholars point to their radicalization as a movement when their leader was killed by Nigerian state forces. As well, um, in 2015, there have been multiple reports that 348 Shiites were massacred by the military in a single, in a single instance. Um, and the military earlier um, this week um, committed another massacre against peaceful protesters in Lagos, killing anywhere between 12 to 56 people with live fire. Um, and, and this is this is you know clearly a situation in which the Nigerian military is responding to to protests with violence. And it's 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 concerning. Um, so I was wondering uh, what the panel's thoughts were, if you guys had any uh, questions or anything um, you wanted to add. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot this week on my uh, Twitter timeline, a lot of people I follow, a lot of Nigerian people, you know, inside of, in Nigeria and also abroad expressing their pain, which has been really, you know, not, it's just, it's just hard to see and it's heartbreaking and, um, I wanted to point um, people to two resources, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, Feminist Coalition on Twitter and Instagram. They're like a organization that helps Nigerian women and they like have a lot of resources. They're not currently accepting donations, but they have a lot of like educational resources for people to learn more about SARS. And um, there's a woman on Twitter, her name is Polly, um, Polly Arungu and she's, um, currently has a GoFundMe for um, Nigerian photographers um, to get protective gear for them. So if you feel so inclined to share or donate to that, do that because, you know, this, we want this moment to be documented so people can see what's happening and, you know, it'd be really beneficial for the photographers to have protective gear. And, um, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to project any like inspiration, like what the people of Nigerian people are doing is inspirational because it's they're going through a lot of trauma and a lot of pain. And it feels kind of wrong to just chalk it up to inspiration when the situation is so violent. But I am really 
proud of the Nigerian people for standing up and especially the youth and their commitment to this this movement, um, even though it's you know caused so much pain and death, it's clear that the people of Nigeria have a set goal and they're very set on accomplishing that. And I can only applaud them for taking this into their own hands and getting justice for their people. Yeah, I agree with Alejandro. I've been seeing um, a lot on my timeline about it. And I think you said it really, really well. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's just, I think, yeah, I think you summed it up really well. Yeah, for sake of time, I won't repeat anything Alejandro said. Yes, agreed 100%. Um, I do want to add also, uh, there's a, if you want a sh really short recap on this too, on a, a bunch of specific events and like how, fr from a Nigerian perspective, uh, Chimamanda Gozi Adichie, um, a novelist, a very, very, very famous Nigerian novelist, um, wrote a really good New York Times opinion article about this current situation in Nigeria. Um, I do highly recommend reading it uh, if you are interested in learning a bit more. Um, anyways, though, I will hand it back to Ethan because time constraints. All right. Um, and I just want to say thank you guys for letting me uh, do a lot of stories since this was, there was just a lot that um, happened this week, which I think our, our audience should, should uh, know about. Um, so with that, I wanted to hand it off to John for his segment. Thanks, Ethan. And for my segment, so schools specifically here in Arizona have been leaning towards reopening for the fall 2020 semester. Now with COVID cases on the rise, kind of again, now school districts are kind of testing that specifically in my Scottsdale beat for JMC 301, which is my reporting class at the Cronkite School. So I previously covered that Scottsdale public schools were opening in phases, bringing back K through 12 in different like orders of like when to go back. And now they have to reconsider it because COVID cases, specifically at a high school in Scottsdale, are on the rise, causing people to quarantine, which is not good. And this article by KTAR or KTAR sums it up pretty well that fewer families are choosing to send their kids to K through 12 public schools in Arizona during the coronavirus pandemic, according to enrollment numbers. Enrollment statewide is down 5% at district and charter schools compared to the end of last school year. It is also 4% lower than at this time last year. The biggest drop is among kindergartners with 14% fewer students enrolled. Um, I think this is, um, it's definitely, I'm not from Arizona. I, most of the schools in Illinois are online. Like they have no in-person classes at all. So I think it's really interesting to see how Arizona did it. Um, I don't know if it was the right decision to bring kids back to school, um, but it's just interesting seeing it from another state's perspective. I think um, hearing that stat of 14% registration drop for kindergartners is very concerning considering how long education here has been inadequate and to me that feels like the gap in education is just getting even wider because of the pandemic which is very concerning and 
you know, there's been a lot of educators who have written articles on how the pandemic will further the education gap, not just in Arizona, but in the country. So if anybody wants to learn more about that, I highly encourage doing that Google search. Yeah, and just want to say, like, yeah, John, you know, I think as for the whole reopening schools thing, which uh, the president has really been pushing at the federal level, um, I think, yes, reopening schools should, like, should be done, but it should be done safely. That's the important part. If we can't do it safely, then we shouldn't do it. And... The problem is uh, there's places where it succeeded, like New York so far in the first, just the first month of reopening schools has had pretty smooth sailing so far. But also the virus is doing a lot better there now than it is just about anywhere else. So it's a messy situation. Uh, I, I'm not here to pretend there are easy answers. There are absolutely no easy answers in this entire crisis. I've been preaching this on the show from the start, like from everything, I'm no scientist, but from everything I've been reading, like there is, there are no easy answers to this because you solve one problem, there's like five more. We, we move schools online. Well, what about school kids who don't have internet? Uh, what about parents who are being forced to work because, you know, there's no support for them. So, yeah, it, there are no easy answers, yeah. and it stinks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look, um, typically what's cited as you know why we should open the schools to say you know this country or that state or this area has been able to do it successfully, and generally if you look at this, the places where it's been successfully done, they already had they they already had the virus relatively under control where they opened the schools, so it's. If you're trying to like say like you could reopen schools right now in New York and that's going well, but I don't think you could reopen schools in Iowa or the Dakotas and that would not go well because it, it you know if you're in if your community is still having a super spread event of coronavirus, then opening schools is not going to be safe. But if it's relatively under control, if less people have it, then you probably can still safely reopen schools. I mean, like New Zealand can do it because they have coronavirus under control. Taiwan can do it because they have coronavirus under control. We can't do it nationally because we don't. Yeah, not, not great. Uh, we really need to do better in this country uh, concerning the pandemic, uh, because once again, as 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 we said in my segment, like things are getting worse at the moment, for the most part, with few exceptions across the country. So, yeah, I know the school re the school reopening debate's not an easy one, but as we've said on the show before, reopening should be the goal, but. The caveat is it must be safe. If it's not safe, don't do it. Because the fact is, like some people say, like kids don't get the Rona. And it's like, okay, they do get it at much lower rates. That is correct. However, kids can still spread it. 
now the research out there is a bit mixed. There's been uh, the, the consensus is starting to lean towards kids can actually spread the Rona at relatively normal rates. So once again, we're still learning a lot about this as we've continuously said on this show. So tread lightly is, I guess, my piece of advice as it's been from the start. Tread lightly. Well, and, and even even if your kid isn't, you know, at risk of dying, you know, it's probably still going to have lifelong effects on his on his health, on his on his lungs, or his or her lungs, on on their just their health for the future. And just because you don't die doesn't mean you're not affected by it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's all. You know, it's all a bunch of mess, I guess. <laughs> Um, that's all I have for my segment. Um, I can just throw it off to Alejandro for his segment. Thanks, John. So this week I'm going to be talking about, oh, wow. Why did I not have the Google Doc open? So sorry, everyone. This is very unprofessional. Okay, here we go. Um, so Ariana Grande has released a new song titled Positions, the lead single to her upcoming sixth album and her third in three years. On the song, Grande expresses her willingness to switch positions for her lover, whether that be in the kitchen or in the bedroom. Honestly, it sounds like she's having a lot of fun and I applaud her for it. It's an R&B track that is very short but catchy, um, which you don't, you know, from a lead single, you really don't need much more than that. The song is produced by frequent collaborators, Tommy Brown and Mr. Franks, alongside a new collaborator in London on the track, a stalwart in hip hop and R&B. Grande also co-wrote the song with one of the most exciting up and coming writers in the industry, Nija, who has produced, who has written for the likes of Beyonce, Megan Thee Stallion, Cardi B and Lady Gaga, just to name a few. Throughout her career, Ariana Grande has switched between making pop and R&B music, which is something that has felt authentic given that she's actually worked with producers and songwriters who work in R&B, most of them black, unlike many other white artists who dip their toes in hip hop and R&B, but don't actually make an effort to make music with people who know the genre the best. Well, I'm not gonna praise a white woman for working with black writers and producers. I think it is a step in the right direction. At this point, it seems like Grande's work ethic has not slowed down, even it has become harder to stay relevant in pop music. But Grande's dedication to her work has paid off. Working with her friends and close collaborators has allowed her to craft a sound that fits her and what she wants to make. In the past, I've taken her talent for, for granted. From watching her as Canon Victorious, it was obvious that she could bet a high note with ease, but then again, who can't do that? Well, to be honest, most singers today can't. With every new album that Ariana Grande makes, she's progressively becoming more and more involved in the song making process and taking agency in her music. In the past couple of years, she's even learned how to produce her own vocals and become um, skilled in engineering, something that I don't see most pop stars doing. I think she's pretty much made to fit the perfect pop star mold, make great songs and make great albums, tour, repeat. However, Grande has learned to use her music to open herself up to fans and tell the stories of the things that matter the most to her sometimes in a very fun way, like in her new song positions, and sometimes in a more somber tone, like her song Ghost in, off her 2019 album, Thank You Next. Oh, did I mention the Ariana Grande record drops a week from now? 
When Ariana Grande is well into musical retirement, I have no doubt she will be a mentor for up-and-coming artists and eventually become a producer herself, which I think could be very exciting because she's pretty much become, you know, the image for pop stars of this age. And um, it would be really interesting to when she's older to see her mentor other people. Um, so yeah, um, if anybody has anything, they can uh, express that or we can wrap it up. Um, you know, I really want to say Ariana Grande, like really growing into her own in the music industry is a beautiful thing to see. Like a pop star who's like very, like very talented and also very knowledgeable. Um, on music and knows the right people to learn from. And like, you don't see that every day in music or I really agree. any high profile celebrities. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, over the years, she's definitely become more vulnerable as to where in her early in her career it was very like, um, well, she was doing some R&B, it was very like pop. It felt very kind of, you know, not produced, but it just um, was, you know, it was very obvious what she was being trained for, which is global superstardom. And now that she's reached that point, she can pretty much do whatever she wants. And now pretty much everything she makes is very personal and vulnerable, which is really, is, you know, I don't think we see that many people making super honest music in a consistent fashion like she does. So I think that's brought us to the end of this episode of the Review Squared. Um, I'd like to thank our host for the episode, Ethan. He did a great job and was able to bring up a lot of important stories. And no doubt, uh, just to give a quick teaser to next week, you'll definitely be hearing more from Ethan with possibly a special guest. Maybe. I don't know. You're going to have to tune in. I'm not, I'm not going to... Um, Give, I'm not going to give away our secrets for free. Okay, that's what you got to stream the show for. But without further ado, um, I'm Alejandro the best at that. This has been The Review Square. The song at the start of the episode is Dedicated to the Press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtide. <laughs>